Today's episode of the No Fun City Podcast is brought to you by Quest Trade. There's a new world of investing where the fees are low and you come first. It's time to switch. Head over to questtrade.com to check out do-it-yourself, self-directed investing. Take matters into your own hands, build your own investment portfolio with a self-directed account and save on fees. Make your money work harder. Questrade is Canada's fastest growing online brokerage with over 21 years experience in the Canadian market, $18 billion in assets under administration, and a nine-time winner of the best managed companies in Canada. And you could rest assured knowing that your money is in good hands. They go above and beyond to protect your account with an additional $10 million in private insurance so you know your money is safe. For more information, check out questtrade.com. Just use the link in the description below. On to our show. Welcome to the No Fun City Podcast, episode 17. We were supposed to have many more episodes than that this year, but Corona hit. And look at us now, doing Zooms like every other episode. Today, we have a very special guest, as always. Aaron, I say that for every guest. But you are very special, I think, in my heart. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron Chan, author, I guess in some ways filmmaker, writer, all of these things. And today we're going to be talking about specifically, I guess, Aaron's new book, as well as your life here in Vancouver and your upbringing, because Mm -hmm. that's partially what your book was about. And um, I don't know if you want to jump into maybe uh, your upbringing first and then get into maybe the book or vice versa, but maybe tell the people a little bit about yourself and what this book is all about. Sure. Um, So my name is Aaron. I grew up here, born and raised in Vancouver, one of the few who haven't fled the city, it seems. Mm -hmm. I uh, was born and raised in Caresdale, grew up there, and then moved to East Van when I was 13 and have been living in East Van ever since. Um, I wrote this book, um, The City is a Minefield, uh, which is a memoir collection about, about growing up uh, in Vancouver, being gay and Chinese and Canadian, and all of the kind of issues around uh, what it's like to grow up with these mixed identities and uh, the unique experience that um, that brings. And you and I, like, I kind of, I read your book, obviously, and I found that, I mean, even though we're very different people, I found that there were some things that we related uh, to each other with, like uh, the fact that our parents, for example, are of different background or different ethnicity, you know, like they aren't, quote unquote, the average Canadian culture. And growing up dealing with parents that were maybe um, a little more... I want to say uh, uh, conservative, I guess you could say is the right word and maybe a little more strict, I guess, right? So my parents are first generation uh, immigrants from China. My dad's from, my dad's from China and my mom's from Hong Kong. Um, I grew up speaking Cantonese in my household and going to Chinese school every Saturday morning, like a good Chinese kid uh, and also going to like, Uh, a Canadian public school like an elementary school as well I never felt like I was whitewashed but I felt like I was this different kind of identity than my parents and than from my classmates 
growing up in a growing up and having first generation or traditional kind of parents it is a different to me it's really obvious that it is a different experience than growing up with like i don't know if you're third fourth fifth generation a person of color in Canada. That's a completely different experience. Um, so there were definitely times when I felt like, for instance, seeing the first gay people on TV, which were like these two, this couple, this gay Asian couple on this Chinese show that was super popular in the 90s called The Kindred Spirit. Mm -hmm. And I had already known that I was gay at that point. And when their storyline wrapped up basically one of them like kills the other um because he is like straight now uh my and that was very much the kind of mentality at least in the 90s i think a little bit they're a bit more progressive now but that was kind of the um kind of what chinese society thought about gay people that number one there's no no such thing as like a you know really gay person and number two like there's something wrong with them if they are um so when i watched one of them turn straight and the other one die it like i went to bed that night thinking like i'm never going to tell my family now they're not going to understand i it was really frustrating there are certain things about chinese culture that is like completely taboo or like uh just a whole whole different cultural mindset about it and you're not supposed to as like a good you know asian child you're not supposed to do things like as you said you know talk back to your parents uh or bring up things or talk about things for example like being gay because that is a whole taboo thing uh, and then if you do then like there's something wrong with you or you were like that's a really, really big deal, even though it shouldn't be. So it was very tough navigating, I think, those two things of like, um, I am coming from a culture that is very different than the culture you are currently living in. Uh, and navigating those two things is, can be very difficult as I think I have touched on in my book. Yeah, definitely. The thing, the interesting part about it, though, is that you were born here. So your own experience was always, like environmental-wise, was always being in Canada and being brought up here. Whereas um, other, I guess, for example, and you touch on this as well, and I'm trying to be touchy about, like, work my way around saying this, because I know it kind of bothers you is when people refer you as like an, an immigrant, right? Like they, they mm -hmm. think that you were born in China or they ask what part of China you were from and that kind of stuff. Like really, it seemed in the book, at least it really irritates you when, when people sort of bring it up that way. So on my end though, it seems, of course you're not born in China, but you do have that experience of living the Chinese culture, which I think is what, uh, most people might actually be referring to and they're like, oh, where are you from or, or whatever? Because even I get that, right? I mean, I wasn't born here. I My family immigrated here when I was two years old. So slightly different experience than you. 
but I grew up here my whole life. I don't remember anything from back in the day, right? From mm -hmm. back home. Um, but it's interesting when you brought that point up because on my end, I never thought about that being a problem. I always thought when somebody would ask that question, it was kind of like, oh, they just want to know like your, your history, like your background, like, yeah, where, where your family uh, came from, whether it was you or, you know, two generations down the road type of thing. Mm -hmm. But another thing I did want to ask you is the title of the book. How did you come up with that? And on another note, that's sort of a similar question of that is how did you come up with the fact that you were actually going to write this? Because I don't want to dive too deep into everything that the book tells. I want people to read the book as well. And of course, we are going to dive into a few things. And I do have some notes that I did take. Um, but I do want to know, because out of curiosity, the title of the book and why, as your first book, uh, this is what you wanted to do as mm. far as the story and the content? So I went to, I was in the creative writing program at UBC um, back in 2012 and I was taking a creative nonfiction course mm -hmm. um, that was instructed by Andreas Schroeder who is now retired. Um, I did not, I at that point, I did not think about writing a book at all. It was just writing was fun and it was going to get me a degree and that was good enough. So I took this class that was a year long class. And by the end of the class in 2013, I was so inspired and I had such a good experience in that class, mm -hmm. uh, both with all of the other students and their feedback and also the Andreas as well, that I was inspired to write a book and I wanted my first book to be a memoir because of being in that class. I wanted to write a book, I wanted to write a memoir as my first book because I felt like, I'm kind of subconsciously I had been writing things uh, a lot about my life and because I felt like people didn't understand me that so much to the point that I was just like, you know what, like if they don't understand why and why I do the things I do and why I think the things that I think which are all part of my experience growing up here in Vancouver. I'm just going to write it down and then they can just read it and they will understand it finally. Mm -hmm. And they will understand me finally. So I, I think subconsciously I was thinking that, but also like more, uh, I was also probably thinking like there are so few Asian writers in Canada and so few that are like, writing about their lives there is like when i started doing like brain proposals and stuff and like part of it is you have to look at existing books that are similar to yours and compare and contrast them and talk about how they're different uh from yours when i started doing my research a lot of the books most of the books that i found written by asian american or canadian writers were about um the the immigration story of coming from China or coming from Asia and you're settling down and you have a whole bunch of like conflicts uh, getting integrated and living uh, in this new land. And that was not the story that I wanted to tell. I knew, especially growing up, that there were other 
young kids like me who didn't have that representation growing up, who wondered if they were alone, who really believed that they were, uh, who didn't have role models, who didn't know what it was like to be gay and Asian uh, out there. Um, and so I think I really, I wanted to write a book for them as well, um, because there were, even though it took me like a very long time to get it published, there were and there still are like, uh, uh, there's a gap in that, I think that need for stories written by um, queer Asian people. Um, so I'm, I think I was kind of doing it for all of those reasons. The title comes from a line in a poem I wrote called Half-Life. Um, the city's a minefield, a haunted house I cannot escape. Basically, that poem was talking about how I it was inspired about my a really, really bad breakup that I had where I just felt like every Thing that reminded me of this person and everything everywhere I went that reminded me of this person would like trigger anxiety attacks uh, that were almost like debilitating I just like froze and like cried my eyes out and it was terrible um, so I'd, it felt like living in Vancouver was like was like a haunted house where there was just jump scares everywhere and sometimes I would see it and sometimes I wouldn't um, for the long, for a long time, it wasn't called the cities of minefield. But then I don't know how it, how I came up with it, and just thought, hey, this, this is a good line. I should use this for my book. So it just made a lot of sense to, for that to be the title. What was the other option? Just out of curiosity. The other option from the very beginning was the path that leads somewhere. Or something like it would it didn't make sense it was honestly it was City a whole minefield is better it's more yeah as soon as you were like the path that i was just like no <laughs> good choice <laughs> that's hilarious i did want to ask you about uh a, like one of the individuals that you do mention in your mm -hmm. book samuel mm -hmm. who and samuel in my opinion like in the book was an interesting circumstance and an interesting individual because he seemed completely counter to your thoughts as far as like, uh, let's just call it like being proud to be gay. Because mm -hmm. on, I mean, you and Sam were dating. Uh, Sam is not his real name apparently, according to the book. So, uh, and you were openly gay and proud, but Sam was a closet, like in the closet. And then also uh, when you guys were out in public, things like that, it was more like you were friends and you kind of, mm -hmm. you know, you couldn't be affectionate towards each other. That had a huge toll, I guess, on your relationship. So what was it like in a sense to be with somebody that on the outside, like, didn't want to, I guess, show affection to you. But then also, how do you, do you understand, were you understanding of his circumstance or situation or his want? Or was it kind of like you were just going with the flow because, you know, romance and relationship and that's just love, right? 
kind of a little bit of that when i first met him i he told me he was in the closet yeah and i thought i was prepared to deal with that i am like super patient i'm a super patient person i'm very understanding i'm very respectful i was 19 at the time and i was like you know what everyone takes their time coming out which is true um everyone has their own journey and i am not going to pressure him to do it he will do it on his own time i just really like this guy mm-hmm. so i was unprepared for what that actually what that would mean for me um i was definitely not prepared for pretending to be a friend in front of his friends and family and like lying to his supposedly like super homophobic super conservative christian mom which was by the way very terrifying yeah your encounter with her i was just like oh man <laughs> yeah <laughs> like if i like one slip up and then not only will would it change my life but it would dramatically like change his as well and uh, like it was just a lot of pressure to keep mm-hmm. up that facade um i didn't i felt like it would like at the time i felt like it was enough to deal with like i what was it um it was the price of admission as dan savage says like is it worth it t- to me to have to put up with this and to lie to people in order to be his significant other for me it was mm-hmm. I, at least for the few months that we were together um yeah. and then afterwards i it when he told me that he was never going to come out and i was like what like that's that's not what i thought i had signed up for um and that really changed everything do you believe that though do you think he he would never come out I mean, actually, wait, do you keep in contact with him now? Like, do you know? No, okay. I don't know. I don't know his situation anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that that situation in, like, in my mind, I was kind of trying to relate with you in the book. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to think, I'm like, man, it must be tough. Because while I was reading this, I could tell, like, you know, as everyone who has a relationship with anybody, especially when it's new, a new relationship, it's like a lot of fun. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you really like, that's, I think, you know, when the, the peak of like really uh, liking, I guess, the, whether it be the companionship or the romance uh, of somebody. And then to sort of see how you were kind of being patient. And I don't know if you were maybe waiting thinking that eventually, you know, this would all sort of like work itself out. But were you just being more patient or were you just being more understanding? I guess I could say, yeah. Because like on one hand, are you just being respectful to him? Or on the other, are you playing a waiting game for yourself? I think it was probably a combination of both. Uh, I, I did like genuinely like when we started dating i did genuinely feel like okay he's he's gonna come around and we'll start coming out like he was out to no one except one other person one of his other friends who like came out to him first um but like aside from that like no one at all Mm -hmm. and 
I, it, I mean, he was, he was also like my first boyfriend, the first real relationship I had with, with anyone. So it was, I think it was definitely like, you know, oh, I really like, really like this person. I'm going to do what I can to like make it work. But it was, mm, it, it became a burden, I, essentially. It really was. Like, it, like, I had come out, I came out to my friends when I was 14, and I had slowly been coming out to people ever since. Like, I came out to my parents before uh, I started dating him. Mm-hmm. And to have to lie to people, and it felt like going back in the closet, and that was something that, like, I had fought really hard to do that, to, to come up for myself. Then mm-hmm. going back in the closet was just like, n- that was not the, worth the price of admission for sure. To be fair and to be clear though, you actually came out when you were seven years old to the- This is true. To the supervisor at school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You whispered in her ear. yeah. See, dude, I, I remember every line of that book already. Um, Okay, so moving on, uh, like sort of like beyond Sam and back into, I guess, the reality of you and whether it be growing up because of what you just mentioned, the whole 14-year-old coming out when you're 14. That is quite like, I guess, in our, like, I'm going to say our generation uh, is a big deal because I didn't know many people who at 14 would come out of the closet maybe now it's a little more uh different i guess you could say but -hmm. back then i don't think i knew a single person who was like openly gay in my school until high school like Mm -hmm. grade 11 or 12 like later later in high school so a i gotta like give you props for being able to identify that at such a young age and then also be able to be uh okay with it knowing that there is some stigma behind it in so many different directions in society whether it be uh, school and bullying or people not understanding or family life or whatever it may be but how were you able to be so adult about it in in some ways like at such a young age and and understand like how you actually felt um i'm just i was just like really wise beyond my years no i'm kidding um i I you really were you really were let's be honest at seven you know you you have this one part of the book where you talk about when you were seven and you're like i knew like way back then so yeah yeah do you feel that go ahead yeah no 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 you go no i had another question but i want you to finish answering this one first uh yeah i I technically came out when I was seven, but I had already known before that, that I was gay. Uh, So just so that everyone kind of has a timeline, like I came out in 2002. This is like years ago. Yeah. uh, When I, like 2002, like when I was 14, I mean, uh, when I physically came out to, to my friends in high school. I don't remember, like, I almost came out to someone when I was in the seventh grade. Like I was this close. Uh, I think that kind of need to come out was, it might stem from like honesty. Like I'm a very honest person and I try to live uh, my truth kind of on a daily and I really don't like lying to people, but it also just felt really, really lonely 
to have no one to talk to about this. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't think, to me, it wasn't really a move of like bravery to come out to my two friends in high school. It was more like an act of desperation, I think, that I needed someone to know. I needed a physical human to know so that I could kind of take this weight off me and to also just talk about everything that I had been feeling. Did you ever consider your sisters as those people to talk to? Or do you think that was too... I mean, there's this one... I'm not going to get into this situation with your sister in the book. That part was uh, pretty, in my opinion, just a little bit funny. Uh, I, I, like, I didn't see it coming where you were talking about... Um, your sister caught you with, I don't want to see, I don't oh. want to spill the beans because I want people <laughs> to read the book to like know what we're talking about. But essentially you had this one situation with your sister and then she ratted on you in a sense, like yeah. being honest, right? So, uh, A, that must've taken away a little bit of a trust factor from your sister at the time, right? Mm -hmm. But B, did you ever consider that you had like two sisters that you maybe could have gone to or do you think that was out of the question? Um, I wasn't very cool. I mean, I wasn't like, I wasn't that close to my sisters growing up. We, we had the kind of relationship where, so I have two sisters, one mm -hmm. who was nine years older and one who was a twin sister. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that I was probably a little bit closer to my twin back then. But our relationship, we did not talk about our personal lives to each other okay. at all. We might, like, we would just you know, watch movies together and talk about our movies. And she was also uh, the type of person who like, um, the type of sibling who, if she saw you at school, she'd be like, look at that loser. That's my brother. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to, her, to her friends. So. But wait, you, in the book, you say that you and your sister like shared the same group of friends. So I just assumed that you guys were always hanging out with the same like Linda I think was one of the, the no Linda. so my twin no. name is Maggie she no 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 I know your twin sister was Maggie but wasn't one of didn't you guys have mutual friends we did uh okay, but our, you didn't hang then, out together not really like maybe okay. a little bit but not really and again we didn't talk about personal stuff yeah so we just kind of like also, she eventually like moved on from that group and found other friends. So oh, I kind shoot. of co-opted that group. I hear you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, okay. Back on growing up, Vancouver, and I guess life as a gay person here, axing out, I guess, the Chinese factor, right? Mm-hmm tell me all about it like what was it like like what did you feel like the city was cold against I guess gay people do you think do you feel like the city of Vancouver was w warm and welcome I mean I know Davy Street exists and there's a lot of gay culture there but that can't be the only gay culture here in Vancouver you know what I mean and mm -hmm. if it is then we're just dedicating a road to a group of people and <laughs> is that an, you know what I mean yeah. Is that it? A rainbow sidewalk and, and what, right? <laughs> like, does right. that mean, does that mean that gay culture in Vancouver is accepted and everything is great and awesome? 
because if it's not, I would like, I would at least want to know like what's going on. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't have that many gay friends. I've like maybe a small handful. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I never really talk to them about uh, gay culture, for example, here specifically in Vancouver, let alone the rest of the world. So growing up between then and now changes Mm -hmm. similarities. Is it, has it all been the same? It's definitely changed. When I started, when I started kind of coming out and like I secretly read like Extra West, like the LGBT newspaper in Vancouver, Mm -hmm. uh, back when it was in print, I felt like, oh, these are my people. This, like the West End, Davie Street, this is my hood. Uh, And back then, I think like, in the early 2000s, like, there were still, you know, gay bashings here and there, and that was, like, definitely, like, really scary. Um, but then things got better, and the, when I started dating, I would have been, I would occasionally, like, just like that song, Downtown, when you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. And I, sometimes when I was lonely, I would just, like, go downtown and go to Davy Street, because I felt like, oh, this is where I can, like, meet people and, you know, uh, not feel so alone. But then it just ended up feeling more alone because no one cared. I went to, like, youth, like, to a youth drop-in where everyone kind of already knew each other and I felt really isolated. And it was a long time coming, but it made me realize, like, I realized one day that, like, um, I don't think Davie Street and the West End and like gay culture in Vancouver is my thing. The scene, as you call, as as people call it, I'm I was not really into the scene. Like I didn't go, I didn't go to nightclubs and I didn't go to bars because I didn't drink for the longest time and it like I had no interest in any of that. I just wanted to like get to know people, but then the people there was just really difficult to get to know. So. It, I wasn't able to relate to them and eventually I was just like okay you know what like at a certain point you just have to stop forcing yourself into a certain kind of culture or like a group of people if it if you really feel like you're not being accepted and so I stopped and then I just hung up with my like regular friends and that was like that's been great and that's been enough uh I do think I mean obviously there is more than just Davy Street as a culture in Vancouver, um, but that is definitely the most uh, visible, I would say. Uh, when people come and visit Vancouver, you know, they want to hang out in like, you know, the, they want to see the, the gayborhood as you go, as, as whatever, <laughs> and like people will just say like, go to Davy Street or whatever. But I think the problem with that is that there's a very the people who go there are is a very narrow population of what it what kind of like what being queer means uh you go to i don't know the drive and there's like the drive is like pretty queer friendly and they're i think the the east van queers are much different than the west end queers uh for for various reasons but they don't get as much of the spotlight as 
the traditional kind of like Davy Street West End queers. Um, so I do think that's an interesting question of like, who gets to represent LGBT people in our city? Uh, why, why these people and not these other people? Um, and I think part of that is just like, is the visibility aspect. You know, you have Davies Street, you have the Rainbow Crosswalks, you have all the gay nightclubs and stuff like that, but you don't really have that in East Van or, you know, the drive or what have you. Um, and also I just think East Van queers are like more laid back and chill and don't care mm -hmm. about being like the beacon of all, you know, queer society in, in, in Vancouver, so. Can I ask you a question? Would you rather have, I like how I ask it before you even answer yes. <laughs> can, I, uh, <laughs> can I ask you a question? Um, okay, if you had to choose, would you prefer having sort of this central area, like this central gay neighborhood? Or would you prefer to sort of have just, I guess the gay community like mixed in and integrated across the city, so to speak? You'd like where it's kind of just um, not like, hey, welcome to Gay Street. You know, it's just, mm. it is what it is. Like, you know, and I'm not like bashing Davy Street in any way or saying it shouldn't be there or whatever. Like, I'm all for like the gay community and stuff. But I just mean, like, do you think stuff like that where dedication to like uh, a street of, okay, we're going to put all the gay stuff here or, you know what I mean? Like, all the gay mm -hmm. bars here. Do you think that kind of centralizes it to like just this one air corner and then you're stuck there? Whereas, like, what if there were just gay clubs? spread across the city are there because i don't even know other than like if a tourist did come up to me and say hey i'm looking for a gay bar i would just say yeah go to davy street as opposed to being like oh well you know you could go to west fifth and there's these, these other places on davy and there's you know like whatever going on in u.s um mm. or is it just like that and people who wouldn't know would just be none the wiser i think dedicating like a space for uh, queer people, like a queer community, has that effect of like centralizing and segregating them from everyone, from any other like community that might come up. Uh, I can see the pros and cons of it. Like the pros is like, as you said, if someone came up to you and asked you, where's a good gay bar? You'd just be like, go over to the West End. Um, but if we didn't have like the Western, if like just it was kind of everywhere, then it, I can see like it might be a little bit more difficult to like, pinpoint a, like, uh, again, that visibility, like pinpoint a certain neighborhood just to like go to. So I, I'm not sure. I think about things like Berlin, for instance, which I visited a few years ago and like that city is like, it's massive, it's much bigger than Vancouver, but it is also like, as you said, like there are pockets of like queer, gay and queer communities all around the city so that you don't have to just like point to one location and be like, go there. Mm -hmm. uh, you can point to a whole bunch. Ideally, I would like to see more than just the, uh, like Davy Street highlighted all the time. But also I think do we have a vest do people have a vested interest in highlighting other spaces in vancouver and i am not sure if they do or mm -hmm. if they just care enough mm -hmm. 
and that would be a shame if they don't care enough i guess yeah i mean i like i just like seeing things like integrated and like not that i don't like seeing you know this street dedicated to whatever it may be anything but like i do like seeing like being able to say like hey like if you know there are people who maybe you know are queer and live in for example i don't know pit meadows or maple ridge or new Mm -hmm. west like they have a place local to go and aren't bound to like have to go all the way to that one street that's right. not close to their area or whatever yeah. or also you know there was always that stigma back in the day would that stigma still be so prevalent if gay culture was kind of spread around the community a bit more as opposed to being in a sense not necessarily shunned to this corner but like just in in that area and hey here's the gay area it, it's or the queer area or whatever you want to call Mm it. Um, But although I do think it's also same thing, as you said, it's kind of like a double standard. Like it's also an appreciation like that. It is there, you know, that we do have a central area for that. So it's like a double edged sword in a sense, in its own way. Another question I was going to have for you is, do you have another book that is coming up or anything in the works? I'm working on a picture book, which is much different than a memoir, uh, a children's picture book, a very sad one um, that I am just doing like revisions on. I have, a, I think for my next like kind of big project, I would like to write another like kind of a follow up to The Cities of Minefield, mm-hmm. um, just because I feel like I want to go into more depth about like my family and my culture and how things have changed since writing my book. Cause I, the majority of my book touches on like growing up until like my mid twenties. And now mm-hmm. that I'm like in my thirties, I think I uh, think about things differently um, now. Um, so I'd like to hopefully work on that sometime next year when the BC and Canada Arts Council gives me money to write <laughs> books. You gotta love the money that comes from Canadian grants, especially for film and arts, I guess, and culture. It's always good yeah. to have like their back for sure, 100%. Are they not giving anything out right now or? No, they are. I, okay. I applied uh, like a, a month or two ago, but I just have to wait until oh, okay. they say yes or no. Oh, okay, 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 that's cool, that's legit. Um, how long did it take you to write The City is a Minefield, though? I get asked that a lot, and it really depends. <laughs> it depends on the day, or what? <laughs> depends how you feel? Yeah, sometimes I'm like, oh, just like five days. It was so easy. No, I... Oh, I was going to be like, what? Like, that's insane. <laughs> if, dude, if you wrote that in five days, I would be totally impressed. 110%. I would be too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it depends on how you count it. So the first piece I wrote that is in the book, I wrote yeah. in 2009 when I was a student at Langara. Okay. At the time, I didn't set out to write a book though. So mm-hmm. I wasn't like, I'm writing a book. Um, when I actually decided to write a book was like 2013 after taking that creative nonfiction course. Um, so you could count it there as well. And then I s- stopped. I finished writing it, I think, in 2016. 
Um, but then I had, a, and then I started sending it out and just like the publishing part was just brutal. It was, everyone said no. And that took a really, really, really long time for it to finally like be, get accepted by a publisher. Um, Cause it finally got accepted. And then there was like, you know, delays and trying to get it uh, to get to publishing it. And then finally it came out last year. So there's all sorts of different ways that you can count it. Like you could count it from like 2009 to like last year, basically 10 years um, from publication. So somewhere so within like five to 10 years, I guess. Depending on if you add publication to it or not. Yeah. So I could imagine like on my end, for example, every now and then, like, you know, social media, you'll get like a negative comment or something, right? <laughs> now on my end, I don't take like negative comments seriously or anything like that it could probably sting a little but i can't imagine like putting effort like hard effort into something you know and something that like you know i read your book and it's well written and well polished like i really did actually enjoy it it's not like i put it aside and uh stopped reading it like five pages in or anything like that I actually dove more in and in as I read along, which is like awesome because you don't get that with every book. But what did it feel like to be like essentially told no time? I don't, I don't know how many times they told you no, but I'm going to assume it's it happened a few times. And like at what point or at what point, I guess, did you say I'm not going to give up on this? You know, like, did you ever doubt yourself at that point thinking like, am I am I beyond, like, am I not reading this right? Or am, did I not make a good book? Or what, what's happening here? Oh, you have no idea how many times that, that thought crossed my mind. Um, one of my friends and colleagues, she's also a local writer. Her name is Amber Dawn. She's amazing. She's a great writer. She told me how she, um, her first book she tried to get published and she sent it to like two publishers and like a bunch of age, uh, literary agents and they said no. Um, but then one of the literary, or sorry, one of the publishers said like, if you fix this part, then like maybe we'll like talk about it. Um, so she fixed it and then she got published. So I was like, okay, maybe like two to three, I'll get like two to three rejections. No, no. <laughs> I got I think in total I got about 35 rejections from Whoa. publishers and literary agents over the course of two or three years I think uh at first okay so I have been doing like I hadn't made films before I got rejections for those mm -hmm. I had been sending out my writing and trying to get it published uh, for a few years and I got tons of rejections for those. So like rejections was not really a thing that like phased me. I take rejections very well. I'm very like, I'm very, ch I'm a very chill person. So like it mm -hmm. doesn't, it doesn't, it's fine. Um, but when you're sending out like a work that is like, I think based on your life, then it starts, to, there is a certain, at a certain point, I don't remember when, but I was like, after, I don't know, my umpteenth rejection, I thought, is this any good? Like, because the thing is like, if they said, if you fix this, then yeah, maybe. Uh, but they didn't, none of them said that. They were just, no, it was all form letters. It was just like a blanket, no. Generic. 
Yeah, exactly. All they did was add your name. Basically, yes. Uh, So it got to the point where I was like, not sure what was wrong with it. And no one seemed to tell me. So it, then the the doubt kind of like starts getting in your head and you think, you know, is my writing bad? Am I just like a shitty writer? Is it, is my life not interesting? Is like, is it too gay? Like, I don't know. Like, uh, and then for a year, I think I just like kind of shelved it because I was just tired of all the rejections. And I was like, I'll just visit this later. And then started sending it out again after that and got more rejections. And, <laughs> and then it started happening again where I was like, okay, maybe this isn't actually any good. I don't know. Uh, and then finally there was like, I sent a piece to this very small publisher in Hong Kong of all places was putting together an anthology and I sent a piece over to them and the the head publisher dude emailed me back and said, in your piece, you mentioned that you've written a book. Have you actually written a memoir? Because if you have, I would like to read it. So I sent it off to him and I thought, you know what? Everyone has said no. And I'm not expecting him to say, like, I have no expectations for this. And then he was like, got back to me, I think two weeks later or something. And was like, I think this is great. We should publish it. And I was like, oh, nice. <laughs> <no fee." laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So that, that brings me to actually how I found out about you mm. was Reddit. Because yes. one day I was on Reddit. Cause some, okay, so people actually in general might want to like, might wonder how I get my guests for my podcast. And sometimes like, it's just someone I find other times it's someone I know other times it's someone who emails me and just shows me whatever cool thing they're doing. And I'm like, Oh, this is great. So I'm surfing Reddit one day and I see on Reddit, Vancouver, someone posted, Oh, like walking through chapters and you know, walk by my own book or whatever. I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. I'm like, I wonder what it's like to even make a book like or how you go about doing that. I click on it and I see there you are. So then I said, you know what? Aaron's got to come on here and talk about his book. And that's when I commented and you're like, yeah, let's do it. And that's how, so the internet even itself works in awesome ways because Reddit itself just led me to meet up with you and uh, get this done. So now I'm going to throw a curveball question at you. Great. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's not really a curveball. It might be. It might be. Depends on how how you perceive it. So, okay. In the book, you talk about like, I guess we'll call it sexual language, um, because in this one part we find out that uh, being gay and being Asian or gay Chinese, uh, in some cases, there's like racial gay sort of like. For example, people would mention like uh, no Asians in like adverts, you know, when you were like looking up for relationships for like uh, other gay individuals or queer individuals. So, and in the book, you specifically say that like, it's not a preference, it's a requirement. And that's what bothered you, right? Okay. And you give a good breakdown of why this is the case and why it's a problem and all this jazz. And I totally agree with it, but there was one thing that I thought that could be a counter to what you said. And I wanted to get your input on it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So somebody might not, let's say be attracted to 
uh, gay Asian man, for example. Sure. And in their instance, they're calling that a preference. In your instance, you're calling it a requirement. And to your friends who you actually talk to this about, and I also understand their side of it, they say it's sort of like, no, it's just attraction. It's not racist. It's just like they're not attracted to it, right? But you said, well, attraction, going back to the whole requirement versus preference thing, is sort of like uh, obsolete to the, to the equation. But now my question to you, and I hope this doesn't come off as offensive as much as it does come off trying to prove a point of, I guess, requirement versus preference is if you changed the race to a different sex, then is that a requirement or a preference? That is something people have also thrown at me before. Oh, really? So. Okay, so I'm oh, not yeah, the yeah, only yeah. one. Okay, okay, oh, yeah. cool. Okay, so what do you got? Because <laughs> they're all like, is it, is it sexist to be like... Yes, I was going to say that. Yeah, yeah, then it must be and sexist. That is a good point. However, I would counter that by saying, so sexual orientation is, like, for the most part, like, fixed. Like, yeah. You can't change it. You might like discover yourself, you know, further along the road, but for the most part, it is like we all understand it as being like unchangeable and fixed. Um, if you're not attracted, like preferences aside, if so, I am not a, I'm not sexually attracted to women, mm -hmm. but does that automatically mean that I am sexist? I would say no, because that is just the way that I am. I don't obviously don't, like don't hate women, but I'm mm -hmm. not sexually. And that's just the way that I am. Uh, yeah. And that's just the way that I think a lot of people are. Um, yeah. However, if you're talking about sexual attraction in terms of a race, then, and also, oh, sorry, I'm going to go back just one second. There might be a time when I will like see a woman and think, you know what? I'm going to make an exception. Maybe. Maybe uh, this is the one woman I, in the world that I would have sex with. Like, that hasn't come along yet, but, like, maybe it will. I don't know. Okay. Um, so if you're talking about race, though, race and not talking about sex, mm -hmm. to say that you are not attracted to an entire race, entire race that is not uniform, like, they're all sorts of different body types and skin tones and like sizes and whatever else uh, to say that you are that is not something that is fixed mm. like sexual orientation uh, your sexual attraction I would argue um, is something that is highly influenced by uh, mass media and porn and culture and society's so values Asian and porn out there yeah <laughs> yeah like if <laughs> like i don't know the majority of gay porn is like white goods and if yeah, you're constantly cool. watching that from a young age especially then you're gonna be like more attracted to like white dudes um and less attracted okay, yeah. to others right okay. so yeah so, so in so gay that's... porn specifically it's like white heavy is what you're saying oh yes yes okay. yes yes okay and then if you have other like the very few Asian gay porn 
actors out there are often stereotyped and they're always like portrayed in a way that like for instance if i can be ex- not explicit if i can just be like you can right be up- whatever you want to be on this okay. podcast you can say whatever you want to say okay. i ain't gonna stop you i and <laughs> what you say is up to you this is your you know i'm having you on here as a guest this is your time on the mic you get to say whatever you want i've had people say outlandish shit on this podcast I've even contemplated like deleting one of my podcasts because the person who it was like Alex Jones was in my, uh, you know, oh, who Alex dear. Jones, geez, this guy just went off with like the, like even talking to him, I knew everything he was saying was BS. And I was like telling him then and there, and, nope, nope. Anyway, <laughs> that's another story. But when you're on the mic, when you're here, it's a safe open space and you're allowed to say whatever you want. I okay. mean, given you know, like limitations on certain things. But in this case, I think what you're going to say isn't like, you know, anything like racist or negative to like another person's life. So continue. <laughs> yeah, it's not controversial, but I was like, is this a family friendly friendly podcast? It's definitely not. I mean, it's not okay. not family friendly, <laughs> but it's definitely not sitting there like, I hope your kids are watching who are like eight years old, you know, like, no. Okay. Yeah, we're all adults here. Come on. We can take okay, it. Okay, good. So <laughs> in that case, uh, so the Asian Asian men in gay porn often like bottoms. So they're like getting... They're receiving. Bots. Yes. There you yes. Go. So they're the more uh, submissive, like feminine. Yes. Okay. Yes. okay. They're often cast and filmed like that. Yeah. Um, and so that also, that also translates in the real world when... I started dating and like 40 year old white guys would be like, Hey, you want to get fucked? You're Asian. And I'd be like, no, I don't. And also like, (laughs) what the fuck? Like, so it, that is, is, is an example of like the ways that again, mass media shapes these ideas that we have and shapes our own kind of preferences. And also I think that when people say, preferences if they say like i'm not attracted to asian guys it's just a preference uh there are so many there are other people out there who have said you know what like i used to think that as well and then i went to asia and i lived there for like five years or whatever and i began to see like that there people are there's all sorts of different people i like became attracted to like all sorts of different people as well and i can't believe that I ever had those like believe those ideologies so it can i think i think your sexual preferences your sexual types of attraction outside of like uh sex and gender can change mm-hmm. it's just people refuse to change them because they think that they are entitled to whoever they are attracted to well, aren't they entitled to everyone who they're attracted to? I, I mean, well, given that that person is also entitled to wanting to be attracted to them. I mean, entitled in the sense that, like... Oh, you mean, like, they're entitled. Entitled. Yeah. Like, they like, act entitled about it. Yes. Yes. So okay. there are, for instance, a lot of Asian guys who 
say that they're not into age, other Asian guys, which I find mind boggling that they have been like brainwashed by society to think that they, people who look like them are like unattractive, but that is a whole different thing that I will, whole different rant that I will not get into, but they have this like entitlement of like, oh, I want a white guy. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm entitled to a white guy because I have, I've seen it in, in porn and I'm not going to even like consider anyone else. Yeah. That sort of, in, Sorry, that's the entitlement dog. that I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. Um, fair. And I'm going to, I'm going to actually give instances on my side. So like mm-hmm. as a straight man where this has also been a bit of a, an issue on two, two senses. So on one, on one sense, I could say yes. Uh, like on dating apps and stuff like that. I've seen girls like females who say like white guys only. I've never seen like girls I've never once seen girls say like brown guys only or Asian guys only anything like that so I do see white guys only and yes I do automatically assume they're racist (laughs) (laughs) but on the other hand thinking on it myself I for the longest time refused to like I I have a Iranian background right like my parents are from Iran Mm -hmm. Um, I refuse to say the word Persian because Persia doesn't exist it just that's a whole other conversation that I can't have right now that I really want to but okay back on this but on the other side I for the longest time refused to date an Iranian female Mm -hmm. and it wasn't because I wasn't attracted to brown females and I only dated white girls it was because I didn't want to have more Uh, of the Iranian culture that was in my life that I already had because Iranian culture is very overwhelming right Mm -hmm. families are all big like everything like that so I wanted to just like and I it's not that I was throwing my culture away or or my background and my culture away uh, or anything like that it was kind of just like I wanted different does that make sense Mm -hmm. yeah I, I don't know and now now I'm thinking like is this wrong so Here's what happens. Here's the interesting part of that. So I toss that out the door when I meet my current and now like long-term girlfriend who is Iranian Mm -hmm. and is actually probably one of the best relationships I've had in my whole life. So isn't it weird how that worked out? And it's kind of, it's a, it's a similar situation to what you're talking about, right? Like I didn't want to date uh, Iranian girl because of the uh, culture that I already had and the upbringing I had and the thoughts that I had of like Iranian Iranian culture in a sense it's just very as I said overwhelming and overbearing so I felt like I was just already suffocated by that if I date a girl who is also this culture then I'm going to be bombarded with it. it turns out it's not the case and you know how I found out I gave it a shot <laughs> You proved yourself wrong. Yes. So like, in a sense, there is still hope. There is still hope for those guys who are saying no Asian men or whatever. Um, Just give it a shot. Yeah. I would also point out, like, it's not that you were not attracted to other Iranian women, right? Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. It was just the fact that I did not, I, maybe I just was like, uh, overwhelmed by Iranian culture like I I just like had enough of having Iranian culture in my life that and maybe this was also my upbringing of 
living in sort of like white Canadian society versus having a multicultural background um, uh, from Iran and, you know, living in that culture at home. And you bring this up too, where you talk about your home life versus school life, like being outside of school. Hey, stop it. Um, and your home life and how the two sort of like contrasted each other. I felt like if I dated somebody who was in my own culture, that I would be just overwhelmed within my own culture. And I wouldn't, uh, I don't know. I really, I still to this day can't really explain it. It was just like, I didn't want to be overwhelmed with Iranian culture. Okay. Because I had been overwhelmed with it my whole life, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What else is going to happen with you? What's next in the world of Aaron Chan? Uh, um, at you got the point, children's book. Yeah. Uh, maybe next year I'll be working on another memoir. Um, it's so hard to say in these times what's going to happen. Um, I know. Yeah. Because like, I was thinking about going back to grad school or going to grad school and okay. like I had applied last year and then didn't get it like it didn't happen and then I thought well do I want to try again this year and I thought I don't know like schooling is really kind of uh, schooling has changed a lot over this these last few months and things are kind of uncertain so it's it's hard to say. And then I was like, th also thinking of like moving, but I guess that's not going to happen. <laughs> Where were you going to go? <sighs> Maybe Toronto. Yeah. It's, it's weird because everyone from Vancouver who grows up here wants to move to Toronto. And yeah. everyone who grows up in Toronto wants to move to Vancouver. Do you notice that? Yeah. I've had so many friends who live in Toronto who moved here. I have so many, and they always say the same thing. Oh, I moved here for the mountains and the outdoors. <laughs> yeah. And then the same people who live here are like, man, I'm tired of Vancouver. There's nothing to do. I need more city life. So they moved to Toronto. It, it, it's like this, there's something, there's some parallel, like, psychological thing that happens to people. And whether they live in Vancouver or Toronto, that they just want to go to the other place. I've never been to Toronto before, though, so okay. I don't know how great it is. I'm worried if I go there, I'll want to just move there and I'll leave this beautiful city. Mm, if you want to live in a beautiful city, you should stay here. It's not beautiful over there. Yeah, that's what I figured. I like it here. Have any of your family members, like your mother, or your sisters, read your book? My mom hasn't. I don't know whether or not my sisters have. If they have, they haven't told me. My dad voluntarily read it. Wow. I did not expect that to happen. I did not expect that either. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he expected it. I don't know. Uh, he, yeah, he told me one day, he was like, I want to read your book. And then I was like, uh, you're like kind of homophobic and there's a lot of gay stuff in there I don't know and he's like no I want to read it uh so I gave him a copy of my book and I told him I really stressed I was like you cannot be upset at me if, if you are finished reading this because you are reading it on your own free will and I'm not telling you to read it so like don't get mad at me if anything if you're like upset at anything in this and he just kind of laughed it off and then um took it and then he so he read uh he said he read most of it 
he emailed me some time later and said that he uh maybe i should give some backstory so my i okay. came up to my dad when i was like 18 or 19 it did not go well he was just said a lot of homo homophobic stuff and has continued saying it over the last like 10 years uh, and yet i still keep in contact with him because i guess i think that he'll change or something i don't know but he hasn't um so he read my book he sent me an email he said something like i know you probably don't want to hear this but like I don't know who you are anymore because you're out dating guys and having sex and I don't know anyone like in our entire family of chans who is like this so like you're like a stranger now and I don't approve of the things that you're doing and all these other things so needless to say he did not take that well and then he gave <laughs> I saw so the copy I gave him like I signed it and I was like hi dad like hope you have fun reading this don't get mad at me and then <laughs> he uh, we met up for lunch I think earlier this year, and then he just gave me back that copy. So oh, man. that's yeah. So do you you? But like, are you on good terms with him, or and that's just like the one taboo sort of sensitive area that you guys just maybe don't talk about. Uh, it depends on what you mean by good terms. We're civil to each other. We talking. Don't... Do you see him often? Do you call him no, often? No, I don't see. Him. No, we basically only talk by email. He still lives in. Well, he lives in Burnaby. Um, but he lives. Yeah, he still lives in Metro Van. And I told him. Well, the last thing I told him in regards to all of this, like what he thought, was that like it's been so many years since I came out to him and since he said like these really, really hurtful things to me and that he still hasn't changed that I said, if you ever say anything like that to me again, then I'm just not going to talk to you anymore. Cause like, I can't, it like understanding has to go both ways. I understand that he is a very traditional person and he grew up in China and he has these very uh, conservative beliefs, but that's not an excuse for him to, continuously make really mean say really mean things to like the only family member who still talks to him so um and then like I, i've also like given him like plenty of resources over the years that he can read up on to kind of educate himself and then he just doesn't so why do you think he wanted to read your book if essentially he probably already knew what his reaction would be because on my end, when you first started saying that he read your book, I took it as, oh, like, dad's curious about your life and dad now cares. Like, you know, situation has changed. I but the way you're saying it is that yeah. that's not the case. It may have even gotten worse. I think that's what he thought, that it was kind of like a wholesome memoir. But like, you know, growing up in Vancouver in the house that he like bought and or that my parents bought together and like growing up in our family and that it would be like fun and whimsical like all these memories but it was like not that so I think that coupled like his expectations were like very different from what he actually read and then also I think he's just very um adverse to all of the like gay stuff that it was just too much for him to handle mm -hmm. I see like maybe he thought it wasn't a big part of my life, but it is. So. Well, I mean, you go into pretty detail, like you get into detail, some details, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. 
And, you know, other people would know the details you got into if they go check out your book, The City is a Minefield. Where could they get it? Or Minefield. I keep saying Minefield like Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I read, I'm like, I pick up like City is a Minefield. I'm like, no, it's Minefield. Close, it's close. Uh, yeah. Where could people pick it up? I know where you were when you saw it. It was chapters, correct? Yes, it, there's a few copies left at the Indigo Robson downtown Vancouver. Uh, there's some copies at the Indigo at Metrotown. Um, if you, I highly suggest, however, going to support your local independent bookstore. Massey Books in Chinatown has a few copies. Um, they're amazing. I, the Paper Hound also really great. If you want a signed copy, you can buy one uh, from my website at theerinchan.com and I will if you want you can also get it free delivery as in I will drop it off in your mailbox or I will meet with you and be like hey here's a book awesome. also me yeah. <laughs> um, so and also for those people who maybe don't live in Vancouver they could just go to theerinchan.com and get it there too right do you do shipping internationally yes. or yeah. Oh, you can also like it is available as an ebook as well. In addition to a physical book, um, you can also order it online uh, on the usual places: Amazon, Book Depository, uh, Indigo Chapters, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay. So, anything else, Aaron, that you want to mention? Anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? Uh, you can find me on social media at on Twitter at the Aaron Chan and on Instagram at Aaron Chan Ban. Awesome. I didn't know what your Instagram yeah. was, so now I'm going to add you to Instagram. Um, I will put the links to everything you just mentioned down below so everybody can check it out in the description of the video. If you're listening to this on Anchor or any of the other podcast platforms, thank you so much for listening. But you, sh you can also check out the video of this full podcast on YouTube. If you didn't know that, now you do. Um, this is the end of the No Fun City podcast. Thank you so much, Aaron. Peace out. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. There you go. Peace out. I always do that at the end of the video. <laughs> All right, that's it. Today's episode of the No Fun City podcast is brought to you by Quest Trade. There's a new world of investing where the fees are low and you come first. It's time to switch. Head over to questtrade.com to check out do-it-yourself, self-directed investing. Take matters into your own hands, build your own investment portfolio with a self-directed account and save on fees. Make your money work harder. Questrade is Canada's fastest growing online brokerage with over 21 years experience in the Canadian market, $18 billion in assets under administration, and a nine-time winner of the best managed companies in Canada. And you could rest assured knowing that your money is in good hands. They go above and beyond to protect your account with an additional $10 million in private insurance so you know your money is safe. For more information, check out questtrade.com. Just use the link in the description below.